Well, we are in our second to last week uh, in our series in the Great Commission. We started this series back in um, August, and it's hard to believe that now we are nearing the end of October. Uh, and I, I, for one, this is one of my favorite ways to, uh, to open the Word and to, um, to hear Scripture, to preach uh, Scripture, is to, to take... A length of time and really dive into a passage uh, when we several times uh, over the, the course of what has been crossroads for the past uh, almost 14 years, uh, almost 15 years, over 14 years, there are times when we will take an entire, um, whether it's a letter in the New Testament, an entire book of the Bible and just verse by verse um, go through that. And one of the things that that does is, is it changes the way that we read Scripture uh, but, but it also creates some accountability that, that we can't just skip over the things that might be hard for us, um, that we have to, uh, with the Holy Spirit's help, deal with those things and allow God to deal with us in those things. And so, um, you know, part of the reason that we spent so much time in this, because we could take a Sunday and, and do this passage that is at the end of Matthew's gospel uh, that we know as the Great Commission. We could take a Sunday and, and do that. Um, but I believe that, you know, if our mission as a church is loving our community and inviting all to discover life in Christ, the vision, the, the picture that God has given us and how we live that out is that all, all of us, all are becoming, becoming in the process, becoming deeply transformed disciples who live for the transformation of hearts, the church, and the world around us. Right, and that's a process, and and so we've we've wanted to understand what does it mean to be a disciple, and what does it mean to live as disciples, and so um, that's the reason for taking these uh, these five verses and really stretching this out and spending some time uh, with this, and I hope that it's been a challenge and a blessing to you. I know I know that it has for me, um, and and I, I tell people all the time. You know, I feel like God is just dealing, you're just getting to listen in to the way that God is dealing with me on these things. Uh, so uh, just know that I am on the journey as much as anybody else in this, uh, in this space or in the here. Hey, and for those of you who are online, I welcomed you earlier, but I welcomed no one. I, uh, ben is away um, this weekend with his family, getting to spend some time with his family, which we're grateful for. I knew I would forget something. And I forgot to start the live stream. So welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. No one was there when I welcomed you uh, at first. So that's my bad. Um, let, let me begin with a question. And maybe this is a question that you've heard like in a job interview uh, setting or in a, you know, a leadership, like you're, maybe you're part of a, um, a, a leadership discussion, uh, ways that you can grow as an individual. Maybe it's a, a question that you've heard in, in just a good, you know, one of those like table topics uh, discussion. But if you knew, uh, or, or I, let me begin this way, what would you um, do or what would you attempt if you knew that failure was impossible? Like if, if, you, if you could not fail, what would you do or what would you attempt? And really it's not an attempt because you're not going to fail at whatever the thing is that you would try. You know, for some, the, the things that, that come to mind are you know, they're, they're, they're big, like they're big picture kind of things. Like I, I would make an investment or I would, I, would, um, I, would, I would try out for this, you know, maybe you're a, my son, my oldest son is a, a student at uh, Carolina. This is his first semester there. And, you know, people are like, is he going to play basketball for Carolina? I'm like, that would be his dad's dream. I don't know if he's going to or not, but like if you could try to walk on to that team, like, would you, you know, and knew that failure is impossible, what would you do? What is the thing that you would do? Maybe you would, 
you would um, attempt to find, uh, you know, the cure for some disease, what would you do? Maybe you would, that person that like, you just have been dying to tell them how you feel about, the, uh, about them. Maybe that's the thing that you would do. If you knew failure was impossible, what is the thing that you would do? And, and maybe for some of you, you're like, yeah, it's not that grand. It's like I would, I would attempt to clean my house. Or I would, um, for me, the, I would attempt to, to back uh, a trailer at a crowded public boat ramp. Like... I can back a trailer when no one's watching and there's no, I have no time limit. Like if I have lots of time and no one's watching me, I'm good. At a boat ramp, different story. So like that would be my thing. What would you do if you could do anything and you're not going to fail? Failure's impossible. I would back a trailer at a public boat ramp. But if, you, if, we sit, if we sit with that question long enough, we begin to realize that there are things about our lives that we would like to see change. Or there are things about the lives of people around us that maybe we would like to see change. And we would, we would want to do something that would change our circumstances or change the circumstances of, of people around us. Or maybe you begin to think, what could I do that, that could possibly change this world and change the circumstances of a lot of people? And when we begin to think that way, and at the heart of this question, at the heart of what we are going to look at this morning um, in, in the, the Great Commission passage is is essentially wrestling with that. When we begin to think about how something that we can do changes the world around us, we're beginning to tap into the heart of Jesus because he came to transform the world. He came to make it as it should have been. Just as a reminder, um, this is a a freebie, a bonus. Let me read um, from Revelation uh, chapter 21. You've heard this before if you've been in here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the vision that John uh, received from God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, uh, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This picture that things will be as they should have been, as they were intended to be from the very beginning. That is the direction that we are moving, where everything else about the natural world is in this, this kind of trajectory of decay. God is at work through the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus on the cross and what Jesus began in inaugurating his kingdom of making things new. And this promise that everything will be as it should. Anytime we look at the world and have this burden or this ache that things are not as they should be, that we want to see something different happen, that we want to see change, when we begin to think and operate that way, we are, we are tapping into the heart of God. Amen? Amen. And, and church, I, I believe for far too long we have allowed the world to tell us it's not possible. We have allowed the world to diminish and make our dreams too small. And yet the promise that we have in Scripture is that we cannot dream big enough. There's no big that's too, uh, there's no dream that's too big for God. 
So, if you could do anything and know that failure is impossible, what would you do? And it's not the question that we hear this morning. That's not even the statement that's made. Yet the statement that is made ought to encourage and inspire us. Normally, I would tell you that these uh, words are on your screen. They will be on the screen for those of you who are watching online. Uh, but they, if you have a Bible, we're in Matthew 28, 16. That should be no surprise to you, um, unless this is your first Sunday here. Uh, in which case, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Um, but the, these words are printed on the front of your bulletin. So if you would, in honor, of reading, uh, in honor of the reading of God's Word, please stand. Let's read these words aloud together as we have been doing. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to read this from uh, the message version from Matt. Uh, again, same passage, but let me, let me read these words because this will help um, kind of prepare the stage for what we're going to talk about. Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave this charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life. Marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. And then this final verse where we will focus this morning. I'll be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end. In, in the NIV we read, I will be with you always. But the, the literal translation there is day after day. And Eugene Peterson captures that in, in, in the message version. Day after day after day, right up until the very end, I will be with you. Right up until the very end when we are called home, when we experience our homecoming, or right up until the very end, which we know is really no end at all, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom here forever. The promise is day after day after day, Jesus will be with us. So what he offers to his disciples is not this question, if you could do anything and know that you would not fail, what is that thing that you would do? Instead, he tells them to go and do the things that he has instructed them to do, that he has spent the past three years teaching them and showing them, uh, go and train them in the way of life, other translations uh, say, go and train them in the way of life, and that's not just any life, it's not just some life of your own choosing, it is a life under the authority of Jesus, who we see here, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Go and train them in the way of the life that I have revealed to you, the life made possible by my life, death, and resurrection. He says, go and train them in the way of life. And as you do that, know that you do not go alone, that I will be with you this day and every day from this point forward. Some translations read, until the end of the age. What does that mean? Until the end of the age. It is the age and, and, uh, that will end with Jesus' return. So, so we, can't, we can't read this and, and hear, and again in the NIV, until the end of the age, we can't read this and assume that this was just for the 11 that were gathered there on the mountain. 
We have to assume that because Jesus has not yet returned, we are still living in this age in which Jesus has given this instruction to go and make disciples. That was to his followers. We are disciples. Any of you who consider yourself a follower of Christ are a follower of Jesus for two reasons. One, the work of the Holy Spirit, primarily the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, but also because someone somewhere along the way was impacted by the obedience of these 11 to go and live out this call to make disciples. Those disciples were obedient to live out the call to go and make disciples. Those disciples were obedient to live out the call to make disciples. Jesus is not finished yet with the church. The church is still the primary means by which the good news of the gospel is meant to go into the world. And we are not finished yet because this age is not over. Jesus has not returned. Therefore, the promise for us, the instruction for us to go and the promise that we do not go alone, that he is always with us, still stands. Amen? How does that truth transform the way that you live your life and transform the way that you see the world around you? It's not the question, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? The question is bigger than that and deeper than that and more meaningful than that. Knowing that Jesus is always with you. How does that change the way that you are living your day-to-day? How does that change the way that you hear these instructions to go and make disciples? How does that change the way that you view what God has given you? How does that change the way that you view the people that you interact with on a day-to-day basis? How does that change the way that you view the world? To know that the instruction has been given and it is undergirded by this promise hearing Jesus say these words to you, I am always with you, day after day after day until the very end. Now, depending on where you are in life, depending on where you are in a given moment, that's either really encouraging and really great news, or it makes us shudder when we think about the things that we uh, do in our hearts, the things that we think about people that, that we don't say out loud, or the things that we do say out loud, the things that we might say about people from the safety of our car when they pull out in front of us in traffic, or the things that we do behind closed dar- doors in the dark when we think nobody is looking. To know that Jesus is with you in those moments, that can be a little unnerving. Right? And, and, and yet, if we understand anything from this book, and the entire narrative, the arc of Scripture, we understand uh, as David captures it in, in Psalm 103, you do not treat us as our sins deserve. You remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. That even in, in the moments in our life when we are most ashamed, when, when we would be most unnerved by the, the reality and the truth that Jesus is present with us in, in those things, even in the midst of that, He loves us and and is at work trying to draw us back to himself. Psalm 139 captures this, I think, beautifully. A psalm of, of David. The psalms, this beautiful prayer book of of the people of God and and the the prayer book of, of Jesus in many ways. Verse 7, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Because sometimes we feel like that we want to go, we want to flee from the presence of the Lord depending on the condition of our hearts or the things that we are focused on or, or the things that we are choosing to do that are outside of God's best for us. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. Sometimes that feels like the the best place, right? The the best course of action. Sometimes the darkness, uh, if I say the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Listen to what David has experienced. Even the the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Friends, there is nowhere that we can go in our hearts, physically in this world. There's nowhere that we can go in which we place ourselves outside of the presence of God, which means that there is nowhere that we can go in which we place ourselves outside of the reach of His grace. And that is good news, and I think if there's one thing that the church were willing to share with the world around us, that truth, then we see lives begin to change. And, and yet we live such compartmentalized lives that this truth of the reality of the fact that Jesus is with us day after day after day until it is all said and done. We live such compartmentalized lives that we, it's safer to just put Jesus over here to keep him in this box where he... It, don't, don't meddle with the things that I want to do in my life, Jesus, because when you start meddling, you start turning things upside down, right? It's as we, as we read a couple of weeks ago, this quote from C.S. Lewis that we, we, you know, if we're building a house, we want to make some adjustments here and some little tinkering there, and yet we allow Jesus to come in and start working on the house. He starts busting out walls and doing things entirely different because he's building a mansion, a place that is fit for a king to come and live. And, and that be, can be incredibly uncomfortable because we have this idea of the way that we want the world to be or the way that we want our lives to be and we spend our time, our effort, and our energy chasing that. And sometimes uh, we then say, hey, Jesus, look at what I'm doing. Would you come and bless this for me? Because I really want this to play out the way that I want it to play out. But, but what if we instead approach Jesus and said, hey, is this in line with your best for me or is this in line with what you would have for me. Is this helping me to live into the Great Commission or is this thing that I'm chasing and pursuing hindering me from living into the Great Commission? And the Jesus who is with us always, day after day after day, is faithful. One, to allow us to walk that road that may be a dead end. He's faithful to allow us to get the, to the end of our rope and exhaust all possibilities and then find ourselves unhappy, disappointed, dejected, wounded, whatever the case may be, and he's there waiting to say, all right, now, let's get serious about living the life that I have for you to live. I've been with you in your wandering in the same way that he was with the the prodigal son that we read about in Luke's gospel. I've been with you in your wandering, and I'm also the one who's going to welcome you home. All right, so, so what does this truth look, look like? Because I think we can, we can say, yes, in theory, I, I want that to impact and change my life. In theory, I, 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 I want to stop compartmentalizing Jesus and allow him free reign, allow him not just to be my savior, but to know him and submit and surrender to him as my Lord. So, so what does that begin to look like when we allow that to happen? I, I believe that the, 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 the best place for us to go for that is to, Flip over to Acts, and I'm, man, I'd like to just 
go back again like we did a couple summers, a few summers ago, and just let's preach through the book of Acts. Maybe, Lord willing, we'll, we'll do that again one day. But similarly, Luke captures this at the beginning of Acts. Jesus presenting himself to, to the followers. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We ask this question, how, how is, if Jesus was raised up to the Father after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight? Okay, so how is Jesus present with us if Jesus is not physically present with us? We know that it is through the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, um, in, in his last um, moments with his disciples that John records in his gospel, promises, the, promises the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the one who would come and lead them into all truth, the Spirit that comes at Pentecost and, and empowers them. So he, he tells these disciples who have spent time now with the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus who is dead and is now alive, tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the gift that the Father will send. And then we know that that gift is the Holy Spirit, and we see that when the Holy Spirit comes, things begin to happen. So the disciples are anchored in the reality of the resurrection. The death does not have the final say. That the worst that man can do to the one that they believe to be Messiah, does not have the final say. It's not a period, end of story. It's a comma, wait, there's more to come. So they're anchored in, in the hope of the resurrection. right? But then they're going to go on and face things that are incredibly difficult for them. This is not just, oh, Jesus was arrested, now we go into hiding because we're not sure what's going to happen to him that we see recorded in the gospel accounts. This is now you are the tip of the spear empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the world is not going to contend with that. Just a couple of examples for us to consider. What does it mean that Jesus, what begins to change about our lives, that Jesus is with us always? Jesus enables us in the unknown, the question for them at the beginning of, uh, the, act, uh, of the Acts of the Apostles was, are you now, now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they were short-sighted in their thinking. Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Don't worry about that. I've got that taken care of. But here's what I want you to do. And what he wanted them to do was unknown. The first instruction was, hey, just wait in Jerusalem for the gift. They didn't know what the gift was going to look like. You know, the last time that they talked about a gift coming, it was a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths laying in a manger. What is this gift going to be? They have no frame of reference for this gift, and yet they go. It enables us in the unknown. Jesus present with us also empowers us in the things that Jesus calls us to do. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This is after Peter and John have healed the man that was begging at the gates of the temple. And of course, they heal this man, and, and this is a man who's been lame uh, since birth. 
And now he's dancing at the side of, of Peter. And so people are starting to ask questions, and, and Peter doesn't pass up an opportunity to leverage the fact that he has a crowd in front of him to share the gospel. They seized Peter, and, and John this is up in uh, Acts 4, verse 3. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, not on his own, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are called, being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. Uh, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. And then I love this. Peter says, just so they're clear, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under, under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus tells them on the mount. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Unschooled, ordinary men. The story of the calling of the disciples, the fact that they were called from being fishermen, the fact that they were called from a life of tax collecting. This should be familiar to you. You've heard this along the way. We've, we've, we've mentioned this when we mentioned the disciples. But it, the fact that they were living a, a life in which they were doing a trade means that somewhere along the way in their, their religious upbringing, they were told, hey, you don't quite have what it takes to be a disciple of a rabbi. We appreciate the energy and the effort you've put in, but you're not quite there. But the way that you can go and honor God is, is, is by serving the family and, and being a part of the family business. That would be honoring to the Lord. So essentially, they were told somewhere along the way, hey, you don't quite have what it takes. These are the men that Jesus called, right? Not, not the varsity squad. This is like freshman team, maybe. And yet Jesus walked with them loved them, was patient with them, invested in them, died for them, rose again, stood before them, told them he would always be with them. That's the thing that's ringing in their ears. I'll always be with you day after day after day until the end of the age. It means that I can go when I don't always know where I'm going. It means that I can be bold in living out this call to make disciples. It, it doesn't mean that now, Peter can be a little brash, but it doesn't give us license to go and bully people into the kingdom. That's not the call of the church, right? In fact, that the, the people that, if we look at the Gospels, the people that Jesus was, was harshest to were, were the ones who, who claimed to be faithful, were the religious leaders. But the others, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those are the ones that Jesus sat down and broke bread with because no one else was willing to. He wanted to, them to understand and see the picture of a heavenly father who was willing to share a sacred meal with them, who was willing to break bread with them, who was willing to love them into his kingdom that he had come to inaugurate on this earth. Not by beating them up, 
telling them all the things that they were doing wrong. Society was telling them that. They didn't need Jesus telling them that. He simply welcomed them into the kingdom and said, hey, now go and live a new life. So even even Peter, who can be abrasive and brash and and bold, his life is rooted and undergirded by the, the grace of Jesus. Peter, who denied him, denied Jesus three times, was forgiven three times on the beach after the resurrection. These were unschooled, ordinary men, and the religious leaders took note that these men had been with Jesus. And Peter and John and the rest were walking in the knowledge that they were still with Jesus. They weren't doing this alone. Jesus was with them. One other account from Acts this is after the stoning of, <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Acts chapter 8. Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Preached the word wherever they went. Not only does the presence of Jesus with, with us enable us even in the midst of, of the unknown, not only does the presence of Jesus embolden us, in the work that he's called us to do, but the presence of Jesus with us gives us eyes to see that it is possible to leverage even suffering for the glory of God, even suffering for the kingdom, even suffering for the sake of the gospel. Persecution broke out against the church, and these thousands that we've read about were scattered, and guess what they took with them? The good news of Jesus. As they went back to their homes, as they went back to their families, as they went back to their jobs, they took with them the good news of Jesus. It wasn't relegated to Jerusalem. It was meant for the entire world. And as persecution broke out, as an enemy who would raise up and still works to raise up and stop the work of God in this world, the early church shrugged that off under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge that Jesus was with them and went back to their homes and fled as a result of persecution. But the thing that they took with them was the very thing that they were being persecuted for. And they continued to tell the good news of Jesus, which is simply this. Here's how he changed my life. Friends, next week you'll be commissioned to go. Next week, I'm just gonna give you a spoiler. Next week, we focus on the command to go. But between now and then, I want to invite you to consider how might your life change if you begin to live every day in the reality of this knowledge that Jesus is with you always, day after day after day until the very end. What might begin to look different about your life? I want to read these words from Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence, um, maybe some of you have read this book, The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a collection of, uh, of, of letters and, and correspondence words from, from Brother Lawrence, who in the 17th century was, 
um, was basically a, a, a lay monk uh, at a monastery, and he was given uh, the job of, of um, serving in the kitchen, right? And, and, and yet there's, in his relationship with Jesus, there's something about his knowledge that, that this is true, that Jesus is always with him, that changes even the way that he sees the world around them. This written about Brother Lawrence, says, Brother Lawrence had found such an advantage in walking in the presence of God, it was natural for him to recommend it earnestly to others. But his example was a stronger, in, his example was a stronger inducement than any arguments he could propose. His very countenance was edifying, such a sweet and calm devotion, appearing in it as could not but affect the beholders. And it was observed that in the greatest hurry of busyness in the kitchen, he still preserved his recollection and heavenly mindedness. He was never hasty nor loitering, but did each thing in its season with an even, uninterrupted composure and tranquility of spirit. The time of business, said he, does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. He doesn't differentiate between the chaos and clatter of the kitchen and instructions and demands being hurled at him as he does being in the presence of God on his knees before the blessed sacrament. For him, he tapped into this reality that the presence of God was with him always. And his time of prayer was no different from his time in the kitchen. That one wasn't holier than the other, that one wasn't more set apart than the other because of the knowledge that he had and his attention given to the reality of the fact that God was with him regardless of his circumstances. So, we, you know, we asked naturally. The natural progression is for us to ask the question, that's great. That's great for these disciples. That's great for Brother Lawrence. What about my life? What about my life as a student where I'm, I'm worried about meeting the mark, making the grades? I have these dreams and these plans for my life, but it all hinges on how well I do now. What about my life as a parent? I've got young kids. Like, my life is chaos. I'm just trying to keep it between the ditches. Like, what, what about the presence of God? What about the promise that Jesus is with me always affects that? How do I get from here to there? How do I get to the place where, where my time in prayer, and, and even as distracted as that may be, that that's not the only time I try to cling to this reality that Jesus is with me? What about, uh, how do I live my life in such a way that it's not just relegated to my time in church or my time in community group or my time in Bible study? How do I live with this promise being real in every circumstance in my life? Brother Lawrence would go on to say it's about fixing our attention, focusing our minds on Jesus. And I think for many of us, the, the difficulty that we have there, it's, it's, it's easy for us to point to. Many of you have it in your pocket right now. You'll pull it out and hold it in your hand when we're done. The, the world is, we live in a constant state of distraction and noise. Brother Lawrence says this. Since by his mercy he gives us a little Still a little time. 
Let us begin in earnest. Let us repair the lost time. Let us return with full assurance to the Father of mercies who is always ready to receive us affectionately. Let us renounce. Let us generously renounce for the love of him all that is not himself. He deserves infinitely more. Let us think of him perpetually. Let us put all our trust in him. I do not doubt, but we shall soon find the effects of it in receiving the abundance of his grace with which we can do all things and without which we can do nothing but sin. We cannot escape the dangers which abound in life without the actual and continual help of God. Let us then pray to him for it continually. How can we pray to him without being with him? How can we be with him but in thinking of him often? How can we often think of him but by a holy habit which we should form of it? You will tell me that I am always saying the same thing. It is true, for this is the best and easiest method I know, and I use no other. I advise all the world to do it. We must know before we can love. In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall also think of him often. Our heart will be with our treasure. Jesus speaks about that in Matthew's gospel. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are we fixing our attention on that is hindering our ability to recognize the presence of Jesus with us always and the way that that presence would encourage and inspire us. And for some of us, I want to encourage this. Maybe it's in reflection in your life. I don't, I don't know if you're a journaler, but maybe, maybe if, you're, if you're not, now would be a great reason to begin journaling, to think back over your life. What, what are the ways that you can see in retrospect that Jesus was present with you? There's a great excerpt from um, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, the horse and his boy, and Shasta the boy is recounting to the, the lion Aslan all of the lions that he has seen along the journey, and Aslan says, there was just one lion. There weren't, and, and Shasta's like, no, there were seven. I just told you all the lions that there were, and he's like, no, just one. It was me all along. It was me who nipped at the heels of the horse's when they needed an extra push to get to where they needed to be in a timely manner. It was me who pushed you as a baby in the boat so that you could find a home. It was me who protected you when you were vulnerable. It was me all along. What are the ways that Jesus has been faithful and present with you that maybe you didn't even realize in the moment? And what if you begin to live with that as your reality now? Imagine how differently you begin to see the world. A world that's desperate for that hope. Stand and pray with me. Jesus, we are, when we, when we stop to consider that you through whom everything was created, you through whom everything that we see was, was breathed into being, when we stop to consider the fact that you are so, who are so vast, are, are present with us, that is a humbling thought. And, and perhaps we need to be humbled by that. We ask for your grace that you would forgive us for the ways that we ignore this promise. The ways that we try to live our own lives on our own terms and then ask you to bless it rather than realizing, seeing the ways that you're already present in our lives and, and seeking to submit ourselves to the goodness of your Lordship. 
God, would you give us eyes to see how and where you are present with us now. Jesus, I pray that that would encourage us. I pray that that would empower us. I pray that that would embolden us. That we would begin to live life with such abandon to this call that you've placed on us, your church, to go and make disciples and that we would do it in the confidence of your ongoing presence with us, that we would begin to see the lives of people around us change, that we would begin to see our own lives change, that we would begin to see the church change, that we would begin to see the world around us change. Not because of anything that we can accomplish, but because we are simply willing to recognize that you are with us and to live into the call that you have on our lives to go and tell the story of who you are and who you have been to us. Help us to see you and give us the courage to be faithful. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray these things.